Our reading for today is to be found on page 980 in our Pew Bibles and is taken from um, Matthew chapter 13 and starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like measure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Thank you, Joan, for reading that, uh, those parables to us. I wonder if this is working. Does it work? It works. Sort of. That's good. I, I shall speak um, as if it's not there and try and If you look, if you do this at any point, I'll try and speak up, okay? Um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we got to in our series at the moment. Love, joy is the theme this morning, in case you hadn't uh, gathered from the service thus far. And let me begin with a question, therefore. Um, Would you say that joy is the default setting, um, the constant reality of your life? I'm asking myself that question as well. Is joy the default setting, the constant reality of my life, of your life? Because according to a careful reading of the Bible, and I emphasize that word careful, I'm trying not to be trite or glib, according to a careful reading of the Bible, I suggest that it should be. Often in the Bible's storyline, joy is something that breaks the surface. And that doesn't really matter where we are in the history of God's people, even in the low points. Joy, it seems, is always looking for an opportunity to show itself, a bit like a, a football that's being held underwater. It's only a matter of time it will burst out into full view. Now, in the teaching of Jesus, there isn't really a better thumbnail sketch of Jesus's message than that little phrase, the kingdom of heaven which popped up a couple of times in the reading that we had from Joan and is indeed the theme of that whole chapter of parables, Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like X, Y, and Z as the chapter unfolds there. There isn't really a better thumbnail sketch of Jesus' whole message than that little phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It's a phrase which sums up all the hopes and expectations that have been there for many years. God had promised a day when his kingdom would be perfected with a special anointed ruler over his people. And that would be a day of great joy. When God's relationship with his people would be restored with wonderful results for all creation. The mountains would flow with new wine. 
and those parables in Matthew 13, certainly that first little parable we had read by Joan, implies that the kingdom of heaven has come with the Lord Jesus, since he's the one who told those parables about the kingdom of heaven. He is God's special king. And people are being called to join that kingdom. And that decision is like discovering, Jesus said, treasure hidden in a field. But you notice what goes with that discovery. Answer, joy. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had bought, all he had and bought that field. In joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. No sacrifice too great, such as the joy of that discovery. And I relate to that sense of discovering the kingdom of heaven unexpectedly, like um, as if I was plowing a field and suddenly there was an almighty clonk as the plow hit something in the ground. Unexpectedly, when I was just 16 years old, I had no prior interest in the Christian faith that I was aware of. And 42 years on, I can certainly say that nothing in this world compares with the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. That is real treasure. That's true riches. So I wonder, is that your experience? Is joy the default setting and the constant reality of your life? If you're here today as an interested observer, you're not yet a Christian, let me say welcome. I'm glad you're here. It's lovely to have you amongst us. But I wonder how you think joy and happiness can be found. I take it that uh, in common with everybody else, you're asking those sorts of questions. I think it's fairly clear this is an issue for British society as a whole. We are, if you want to characterize a whole country in one go, we are a, a bit of a nation of complainers, aren't we? Short of happiness. However much we might pursue it as pleasure-seeking hedonists, there's still the complaining that uh, often dominates life, isn't it? And if it's an issue for society as a whole, then obviously it's an issue for Christians who live in this country because the chances are we take on some of society's malaises. Have you heard the story of Cedric the monk? He belonged to an order of silent monks. They were allowed two words only each year in their annual interview with the abbot in charge of the monastery. And Cedric wasn't going to waste those words. After his first year, he went in. Is there anything you wish to say to me, brother? Said the abbot. Just two words came out. More blankets. <laughs> and the next year, Cedric went in. And his two words were again very carefully chosen. He just said, more food. Well, when the interview came around the third year, by that time he had had enough. His two words were, I quit. Fine, said the abbot. You've only been here three years, and you've done nothing but complain. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to say that complaining is a national pastime, but it's worth asking ourselves whether we have escaped that unpleasant character trait as individuals. Um, those parables are about... Okay... I'll do no gestures. I'll keep my hands firmly by my side. Okay, I'll behave. Thank you, David. 
Um, the parables are about individuals, aren't they? Um, whether we have stumbled joyfully on the treasure as I did, or if we're more like the pearl merchant that Jesus spoke about, who actually found the prize after a long and painstaking search. Both parables there are inviting us one by one, one at a time, to appropriate the kingdom and all its blessings as individuals. There's only one person in the cast in that story, isn't there? The kingdom grows one person at a time as individual lives are changed. And joy is a question for the individual. Have I responded to the king and given my life to him? Am I part of the kingdom? But I want to take us back to the Old Testament to raise that same question of us as a culture, not just as multiple individuals here today. Often... In the Old Testament, there was joy experienced not just by one person, but by the whole people of God. And that raises, it seems to me, a culture question for us. Are we as a church culture known, by contrast with society around us, for our joyfulness? Joy should be part of our relationships with each other. There ought to be a culture of gratitude and joy in our dealings with each other which I guess finds expression in lots of ways in what we say to each other, what we say about each other. And it seemed to me, it was lovely to pray about the week of prayer for Christian unity. This, it seems to me, is a good thing to consider in the week of prayer for Christian unity, which starts today. Corporately, in our local church, we should have, if I can call it this, a unity of joy, shared joy amongst us. And it's a worrying thing if that note of joy isn't being heard in our dealings with each other because it'll often indicate that gratitude and joy isn't finding expression in our own personal relationship with Almighty God. So looking at joy in the life of the people of Israel, just one episode of it, I think will help us with that. And as I said, that note of joy surfaced regularly in their lives, but I want us to find it in Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. And I've got to hunt it out. I think I remember it being on page 478. No promises, but it's in the middle of the Old Testament. If you can find it in a church Bible, that would be great. Page 478, the last verse. of Ezra chapter 6. Okay, we got it open in front of us. I forgot to pray at the start, didn't I? It'd be good to pray with the word of God open before us, and then we'll read that verse. Um, Let's pray. I rejoice in your word, said the psalmist, as one who finds great spoil, great treasure. We pray, therefore, as we turn to your word now and indeed every day, that we'd have that joy of our eyes being opened to the the wonderful privilege of being part of your kingdom, you ruling over us through your word. We pray it now as we turn to the Bible, 
We pray for that joy in your truth, your word, every day of our lives, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read the last verse of Ezra chapter 6, page 478, 6, verse 22. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. So you see how joy is a bit like that football I mentioned, bursting out in two mentions there. It gives me my two headings for this morning. There are two things for us to focus on which gave them joy all those years ago. Joy because of God's present help and joy because of God's past rescue. And if you're a note taker, I I guess you could slim it down to present help and past rescue. Uh, In case this bit of the storyline is unfamiliar to you, where we are at in the history of God's people, I ought to explain that we're in the 6th century BC, before Christ, after God's people have been living in exile for decades in Babylon. They're longing to be back at home in Jerusalem with the chance to worship God in the temple. They'd left the city in ruins and the temple had been desecrated. But now, after some very tough years, now they have joy because of God's present help. So that's my first point. Actually, this is typical Simon Scott perversity. It's the second mention of joy in that verse where the Lord had filled them with joy in the here and now in the present by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Rebuilding has happened um, first under Nehemiah, remember the city walls, then the city, and then the temple itself. Um, And the pagan emperors of the day had given the permission for that rebuilding program to get underway. And then each new ruler had re-emphasized the decrees. But God had actually made it happen. In fact, earlier in the chapter, it says that the change of heart happened as a result of the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia, three different rulers. The temple building happened because God gave the command. He actually puts that first as he writes the verse down earlier on above all the orders and decrees of the Babylonian kings. No doubt the kings of Persia uh, had their reasons for making their decrees, but behind it all, God was working out his plan. God overrules everything for his plans and his people. God brought about each of the decrees that the emperors sent out. So there they were, I guess, stamping each decree with their seal, saying to themselves as they did so, I'm the most important, powerful person in the world. What I command happens. Uh Uh-uh. Not true. God overrules the decrees. As we read at the end of the chapter, God changed the attitude of the king. And God overruled every second of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year, between those royal decrees happening. God overrules everything. So it was that awareness that God was at work through their work 
as they planned and executed the rebuilding, that awareness that God was at work through their work that gave them joy. Joy because of God's present help. And I wonder whether you have the conviction that God is at work for good in everything in our world today. Pretty complicated looking at the world map at the moment, isn't it? Caroline prayed about wars in multiple locations as she led us in the prayers. And it seems that not a day passes where the Middle East doesn't get more complicated. Lots of people who are in positions of power, as it were, making decisions that affect all sorts of people around the world. Do you have that conviction that God stands over above that all? Boy, we need that, don't we? There's no plan B in our lives either, such that we can make a decision that we'll regret because suddenly it's put God in a spin and he doesn't know what to do. God overrules it all. He is at work for good in everything. The successes, yeah, we find that easier spot, but the failures too. The things we celebrate, but he's at work in the tears as well. The job which we got, the promotion we were after, great. The job we lost, or the job we wished we hadn't got. The relationship which worked, the relationship which was constantly difficult. He's at work in all. He's even at work in the decisions of the mighty men of the day, in Ezra chapter 6, which affect all the little people, like you and me, at a few distant removes. He's at work in it all. So that sort of teaching, the sovereignty of God, is found throughout the Bible, most obviously in Romans 8.28. This will be a familiar verse to, to many of us, I think. God is at work in all things for good, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That verse doesn't even mention joy, does it? But knowing that is a huge invitation to joy, if we only knew it. Now, it doesn't minimize the pain there is sometimes in life, or the struggle, or the uncertainty. And they certainly had had that in Ezra's day. In chapter 3, there had been tears when they laid the foundation of the temple. You'd have thought it was a moment of rejoicing, but there were tears on that day. In a fallen world, there'll often be tears alongside the joy. And you find that in the New Testament as well. Romans 12, verse 15 encourages us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. As if both activities will be part of our experience corporately. But the very fact that God will be at work in both joy and tears is an encouragement to rejoice. He's at work in both for my good and for our good. So as a culture, we're to help each other Paul is saying in Romans 12, to identify God's working even in the hard times and to rejoice together. Um, this is a bit of a footnote on this point before we move on. Just notice another thing, that God's plan in Ezra's day centered there on the temple being built. So isn't it amazing? God runs the world of that day and the diktats of the uh, rulers of the day with an eye on the temple in Jerusalem. 
that visible symbol of God being with his people, was the focus of his working over the empires and political movements of the day. Now, that temple is not something we're called to focus on today in the sense of bricks and mortar in Jerusalem in quite the way that they were, obviously. But we are involved in building up the spiritual house of the Lord. And the same amazing truth, I think it's amazing, applies in it. God is directing everything, everything you read on the BBC News website. God does with an eye on the upbuilding of his church for the honor of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure it says that towards the end of Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to check it out later on. God is directing everything towards advancing that process in just the same way as happened in the 6th century BC. So we may have great concern about the progress of the church in our day, but take heart from this, that God has his plans and he is at work. He is helping in the present, even if we find it hard to see how exactly. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And you can take that right down to the details of our church life or your individual life, even if it seems tough to get behind God's building program by helping with the youth work or praying for what's going on at All Saints Kids week by week or teaching the Bible in a few snatch minutes in the the family meal with children or grandchildren. Even if that sounds tough for you, I promise you God will use that sort of struggle and difficulty to build the church. And what joy that should give us. God's sovereign help in the present. Then secondly, a second reason for joy, a second mention of joy in that last verse of the chapter, and it's no less important, I'm putting it like this, joy because of God's past salvation. And I told you I was going to be confusing. This is in the first little bit of that verse where it says, verse 22, for seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, that's just another word for the Passover festival. And that Passover festival and celebration was a reminder of God's great rescue in the past. You probably remember the story. It was when God's people were slaves in Egypt. The king, or Pharaoh, wouldn't let them leave. And God had to send cataclysmic judgments so that the Egyptians would ultimately release them. The angel of death would pass throughout the land, and in every house, the firstborn son in every house would die. But God gave the Israelites a means of escape, a substitute could die in the place of the firstborn son. So if a lamb was killed and blood put up on the doors, the angel of death would pass over that house. And that would be a rescue they were never, never, never to forget. Hence the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread that they were commanded to celebrate annually. So that's the rescue that they remembered with joy as soon as they got their temple back, a seven-day celebration for God's past rescue. Now, surely that should be even truer for us. 
The great rescue event Christians remember now is not the escape from Egypt. It is the death of Jesus Christ as our substitute. Christ, our Passover lamb, says Paul, has been sacrificed for us. So let's keep the festival. Let's celebrate. Let there be joy among us. And we do that every time, I guess, we break bread and wine at a communion service. Far from being solemn, these gatherings should be marked with joy, a joy which can't be confined to a seven-day feast. God's rescue is to be the great celebration of our entire lives because that rescue in the past yielded a right relationship with God. We can know him personally because of Jesus' death and nothing in the universe could be more precious than that. Now, could it be, if we lack joy, that somehow we've forgotten what Jesus Christ did for us there? Maybe we're so taken up with our busyness or or the sacrifices we have to make in different areas of our lives that we've somehow allowed them to eclipse what Jesus did for us. Is that why we lack joy then? Have we forgotten the past rescue. Maybe we should all find some way to cultivate the memory of Jesus' death this week, beginning with communion in a moment here. Maybe learning a memory verse about the cross from the Bible, which you could just pray into life every time you get into the car or give thanks before a meal. So some activity you could do with others that focuses on that past rescue. Maybe it's a matter of actually starting out in the Christian life and taking the treasure, as it were, for myself for the very first time. So we start with ourselves, uh, rightly relating to the King of Heaven, in the Kingdom of Heaven. We're going to say a creed in the moment. Susu says that I often tell her to believe her beliefs. Must be very annoying for her to have that sort of talk from me, but. It's still a good thing to say, isn't it? To believe our beliefs, actually to believe what we say we believe. And saying the creed in a moment should be an activity of joy as these truths sink in again. God's present help. He's the maker and master of the universe. God's past rescue. Christ suffered for our sins according to the scriptures. We're going to have a a chance to say the creed in a moment. However we go about it, the question we began with needs to be faced. Would you say that joy is the default setting and the constant reality of your life? If it's the fruit of the Spirit, I take it that really God's Holy Spirit will produce this. Yeah, there are commands to rejoice in the Bible. But Galatians 5, our series header, is not one of them. It just says, God will produce the fruit of joy in all our lives through the gospel. We should expect to see it. Any happiness that relies on our present circumstances is likely to be short-lived. I grew up with the old TV advert for Hamlet Cigars. It had a caption, Happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. And some cynic added an extra line to that advert. Happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. It goes up in smoke. Rather gloomy, isn't it? But often that will be true. 
If happiness is simply dependent on enjoying the moment, highs are going to be followed by lows. And happiness just becomes a sort of will-o'-the-wisp. But what about finding our joy not in something, but in someone, someone eternal? That was what the Israelites got right. Joy in God's present help and joy in God's past rescue. Well, let's have an activity of joy together as we stand and say the creed together.